You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. Thanks for making us part of your Sunday. Uh, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, just going verse by verse through that book of the Bible. Uh, and part of that means we don't skip anything. We're just working through the text, going verse by verse. What's there is what we talk about. Uh, as we go through this letter. Uh, So just another reminder uh, that this week, again, like last week's text, is a little on the PG side. Uh, Just so you know, uh, this is the last time of that really in the text. Uh, But just so you have that heads up, we do have a children's ministry that is fantastic. And uh, if not, uh, that's cool. Uh, You can have some fun conversations on the way home. So rock on. Uh, We'll uh, we'll pray for you in that. Uh, So I'm going to pray for uh, us and pray for our services so far and uh, going forward, I'm, gonna say, I'm just going to lift up the service to the Lord in prayer, and that can kind of, you're not like being the bad prayer Christian person, that can be your time to sort of slip out if you want and go check your kids, and if not, it's nothing crazy, but it's just, you yeah, know, a little PG. Uh, so here we go, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we're thankful for this morning, for baptisms, for the chance to sing the good news about who you are and what you've done for us, about your great name, and we ask that you bless our service this morning, that you be with all the churches in our city as we gather, and we will all faithfully proclaim the name of Christ is our prayer. Pray for those in Louisiana right now, uh, experiencing yet again another hurricane, another disaster. We just ask you to be with those folks there and the churches there, all who will be helping the the plan of just recovery. Pray for our nation during this time as the election is approaching, that you give us grace, that you let us be people who, as believers, set a different agenda uh, than the one of this world in terms of how we think about things, what we value, how we speak to one another. Let us reflect Christ. We need him desperately. Lord, as you speak to me right now, you keep the enemy out of this place, out of our church, out of our city. Let the words I say be of you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 1, chapter 7. I'll be like, man, we've got a long way to go. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. My canes got whipped by Clemson last night, so I've got to recover a little bit while I'm up here. So, uh, Verse 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, so he's addressing something that they've been asking him. He's going to speak to something they've brought up to him. So they're saying, hey, Paul, we have some questions. So he's going, okay, I want to be pastoral to you. I want to help you grow in your faith. It was a church that he was involved in seeing get started. He says, so based on what you've written, what you've asked about, he says, it is, here's what they wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's quoting them. This is not something he's saying, it's something they've said, and he's speaking to it. But verse two, he's addressing it officially, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. It's like, what? Then there's the next verse. He says, in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. That's like the shortest prayer of all time. He says, then come together again, Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All the husbands in the room, their ties are going to double after this text today, so you guys are welcome. Uh, Here we go. 
So what's happening here? Paul realizes that in Corinth, this whole area of sexual immorality was a major battleground for Christians of how to live their lives faithfully in a world, in a society, and in a culture where whatever is good for you, whatever works for you, whatever you feel like, everything's permissible, what they talked about last week, you just go do whatever you want to do. That was the culture, and the Christians were giving into this. The Christians were being impacted by the world, and they were reflecting the world's wisdom and the world's values rather than actually the ethic that God has given them for faithfulness. Satan, the enemy, the devil, was using this to wreck a lot of lives. Just the lack of sexual ethic whatsoever. So we need the word of God to speak to this subject. Like we need the scriptures to point to sexual immorality, to point to sexual ethics, and to let that be what frames the conversation for us, rather than our feelings, rather than the world's wisdom, rather than the pressure of someone else. The scriptures must be what speaks to this. The Corinthians are saying anything goes. But what Paul's addressing here is another group who seem to have an overreaction to that. You know, oftentimes there's an overcorrection that we see in our own lives. There's an overreaction. I know my, my son Ty was upset. They, they lost football at school last year and they couldn't play football on the playground because a kid got hurt. And I'm like, it's football. I don't want anybody to get hurt, but one kid gets hurt and no one's allowed to play football again at the school. Like, really, isn't that kind of normal of culture? We overreact to things. We swing the other way. That's usually how things work. So based on the values or the lack thereof, what was happening in their culture, you see in verse one that he goes to the matters you wrote about, that it's good not for a man and a woman to have sexual relationships together, that this person had swung in the opposite direction, or this, this rhetoric. This belief had gone to the other extreme. And they were saying to the church, to the Christians, it's good for you not to have sexual relationships at all. But Paul's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, that, that's an overreaction. That's a swing in the other direction. That's not God's design either. David Strain, who's a Presbyterian minister, says this, that a healthy sex life within a loving Christian marriage is part of a Christian's armor in the spiritual war against the enemy of our souls, a battle in which we are engaged every day. What he's basically saying is, here's how to affair-proof your marriage. And also, here is the answer to sexual morality in our city, Corinth. It's marriage. Marriage, God's design. Marriage that existed before sin existed that this is God's design for that. And then Paul addresses husbands about the rights of the wife. And that flies directly in the face of Jewish and Greco-Roman culture in those days that always privileged the right of the husband over the wife's every single time. Now, does the church and Christianity, as it evolved over time and their practice have really some reckoning to do and sort of misogyny and in way that women have been treated as second-class citizens and we can talk about that all day long. Yes, amen, and it's all true. But look at the actual roots of the Christian faith 
and even part of what made Christianity explode, that even had non-Christian commentators speak, historians that were alive at this time, speak to these realities, was the elevation of women's rights. Was the elevation regularly of the woman, putting her equal with the man in society. So Paul starts here by affirming the rights of each individual. And he commands husbands who are in a culture of domineering, in a culture where they believe that their rights triumph over their wives' rights, not even their wives, that a man over a woman in general, and out of the gate, talking about sexual ethics, he lays down that line. And he says the same applies to the wife regarding her husband, that each is to understand the other has rights in this whole area. And they are completely equal. See, Paul is also teaching that sex is within, within marriage is a Christian duty. And the way that he speaks about it, there's actually something profoundly Christ-like here in this pattern of really mutual service to one another. A self-giving that Paul describes. You can see gospel centrality in this because hopefully you remember if you're a believer here and if you're not, I hope this can help you to understand that we're told that Christ gave himself for his bride that he gave himself up for his bride. The bride is the church. Like we are all called the bride of Christ. And the way we are that is because the groom gave himself for us. That that is how he loves the bride, how he loves us, the church. He does not stand on his own right solely, but voluntarily surrenders them for the good of his bride. So Paul says in verse five, don't deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. That verse always cracks me up. It's like those most spiritual people in the history of the world. Then come together again. Otherwise, why? Because Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, be not mistaken. He's not excusing being unfaithful to your spouse. He's not going, well, that's how things were. What did you expect? That's not what he's saying here. Like if, if someone's been unfaithful and gets caught, it's not, well, oh, we had no sex life. It's, oh, you've always had a headache or you're always at work or you just watch TV all the time. That, that, that's not what's happening here. Instead, what he's saying is, here's a great way to guard and protect your marriage and to enjoy it as God intended. So he's not making excuses. He's not giving an out. He's not giving a blame shift. He's giving God's design. Then he transitions a little. In verse six, he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. So he's just speaking some truth here to them. Some things that were on his mind based on what they reached out to him asking about. He said, I wish that all people were as I am. What's I am mean? What's he talking about? He's referring to his singleness. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, which is single, being single. Another has that, which is being married. Paul's talking about singleness, and he actually calls it a gift. See, too often in church culture, we're inclined to kind of idolize marriage and downplay singleness. He says in verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. He's not telling them they have to stay that way. He's saying it'd be good for them to remain that way. Now, why should they remain that way in Paul's opinion? In Paul's eyes, well, a couple of things. Scholars suggest that there's kind of your cultural reason, what's happening in society, and then there's your kind of ministry mission reason that he's seeing here. 
Scholars suggest that due to the current events that were happening, which is a lot of persecution in the area, where men especially were being killed because of their faith, maybe some were even having to go out to fight and were having their being murdered, being martyred, that maybe right this second isn't the best time for you to get married and have a child because you might be killed in like a month. So just kind of a practical, cultural, societal suggestion. And the other one was because of, and he's gonna go into it a little bit more, about, about the single-mindedness, no pun intended, that you can have as someone who is a single person referring to the kingdom of God. He said, but, super practical here, they don't have, if they do not have self-control, they should marry. Since it's better to marry than it is to actually burn with desire. In other words, you can't have the physical benefits of marriage without actual marriage. Like you can't have the physical benefits of marriage without the institution of marriage. I have no idea what have your cake and eat it too means. I've never gotten that. That's pretty much what he's saying here. That's pretty much this. Calling out basically what we call pretend marriage or plain house. Where we have the benefits of marriage, if that's sexually, if that's shared rent, if that's you know, all, all the things but no real commitment without the actual institution of marriage. And what's happened is professing Christians have adopted the world's wisdom regarding marriage. Here's what we think, here's what we're told, that you should experience some life first. You should be financially stable before you get married. I was dating my wife Christy when I was in college and I wanted to get married uh, because the whole dating thing just wasn't for me. <laughs> and um, so I, I wanted to be with her and I wanted to get married. So I, I, one of my electives I had to take was a, like a marriage counseling kind of class and when I was in college and working on my like, biblical studies degree and that type of deal. And I, I was just curious. So afterwards, I, I went up to the professor, who, and, and then a husband and wife actually taught it together, like two PhDs who are married, imagine that house, uh, two PhDs married to each other, and, and, you know, and they taught this class together, which is kind of neat. And I went up to them, and I said, hey, I just have a quick question. You know, class is over. They're like, what's up? I said, hey, like, you know, I'm 21, um, and I, you know, I have a serious girlfriend, and, 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 I, and she lives in another city than me, like five states away, and, you know, kind of, I'd like to maybe get married, get engaged, and I just want to know how much money do you think I need to have saved up in order to get married? That's a pretty good question, right? I just didn't know. Like, how much money should I have in order to get saved, to have to save up to get married? And she goes, well, I don't know, one, one month's living expenses? And I was like, really? That's it? She's like, well, unless you want to be homeless. And I was like, oh, great. So that's all I needed to hear. And then we got married with no jobs, moved to seminary, and I think our combined income combined, our first year married was like $18,000 or something like that. It, that wasn't fun, but we were together and we were married and participating. I was in seminary, so in God's design. See, or they say things like, I've heard people say things to me like, find someone first, make sure you're sexually compatible with that person. I'm like, what does that even mean? How do people tell me that? They're just kind of dating around so they can see first and find the right person. They don't mean by personality or commitment level or someone you want to marry, but someone that they feel they're compatible with and not personality-wise, but sexually. Like, what does that even mean? Or finish all your degrees. You got to do all those things first. And, and, and Christian parents now even subscribe to this where they're pushing that. 
What we're saying without even realizing it is that financial stability for my adult son or daughter is more important than sexual immorality. That bucket list being accomplished, I mean, scratched off the list is more important than sexual immorality. Paul says better to marry than to burn with passion. See, single people and married people have the exact same sexual ethic. It's no different. And that is that God has designed sex to be a, between a husband and a wife in marriage. So what we see now in our culture, these really long engagements, but, but the goal is supposed to be marriage, not wedding. It's, it's marriage, not time. And this is just advice. I wouldn't get engaged unless it means you're ready to get married. No, I, I wouldn't. I don't mean the next day, but like, you don't get engaged and go, okay, and then we're gonna figure it out and get married eventually. Like, get engaged with the intention of moving forward with this. But let's talk about singleness, because the church has done a very poor job in general of this. And, and it's always hard to talk about it because there's like, majority of people, like 99.9% of people are just like, hey, let's talk about it. There's always that like, oh, you didn't say this right. So I, I'm gonna be careful how I talk about this because I just, because my heart here is that everyone in the room uh, here today can really see how all people work together for God's mission. There's two things I know to be true. One, it's not wrong to want to be married and it's not wrong to be content as single and you can be both at the same time. It's not wrong to want to be married. It's not wrong to be content as single and you can be both at the exact same time. Paul called it a gift, that it's a blessing given by God for his glory which also means into the joy to whom it is given. So does singleness carry its unique challenges? Sure, but so does marriage. Both do in this fallen world. And it's important to know that you aren't single because you failed to be at the right place at the, wrong, at the right time or because your, your friends won't get on it and set you up with her or, or with him. But God in his sovereignty has that for your life at this moment. And the same is true for the married person. So I think it's important that we don't see singleness as a problem to be solved. Paul really validated singleness as a choice because it has less anxiety in some ways than marriage. Look at the end of the chapter. He goes, I want you to be without concerns. She's reflecting to single people in the church, not to the world, to the Christians. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Some of you are like, yeah. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. So she may be both holy in body and in spirit, but the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And you're like, yeah, that ain't easy. Uh, I'm saying this for your own benefit, for your benefit, like for your good. Not to put a restraint on you, that's not what I'm doing, but to promote what is proper to me to be devoted to the Lord without distraction. In Philippians 3, Paul, who was single at this time, says this one thing I do, that I'm single-minded, I'm focused here, I'm saying this for your benefit. He's recognizing the unique blessings of singleness. I do believe that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What it looks like for a single person is that they're free to seek out the unique blessings that come with being single and enjoy them fully for the glory of God. And if you're single in this room, you know what those blessings are more than I do. 
So you can, you can probably list them of what they are and what you appreciate about it. Remember, you can want to be married and enjoy the benefits of being single and the blessings as, God, as Paul says at the exact same time. See, here's what's going on here. Sam Albury says this. The world champions the single life because of all you can do for yourself. The Bible champions a single life because of all you can do for others. Remember, the biblical ethic turns things upside down. It makes no sense to the world. It pushes it somewhere else. It goes beyond this world, beyond this, this earthly kingdom to the kingdom of this world. So again, I know hardly anyone in this room who is single thinks this, but sometimes this can be implied. So I just want to say this because it's important to me. I'm not saying that everyone believes this, but if you're single in this room, you're not a human in waiting. Being single isn't some obstacle to fully living life. It's an expression of it. For example, a woman's life doesn't begin when she becomes a wife or a mother. That's not when a woman's life begins. A woman's life begins when she becomes an image bearer of God. When she is formed in her mother's womb. Matt Smethurst, a good friend of mine, says this, that words like single and married are fine. They make better adjectives than nouns. And that's how we must approach these when it comes to identity. They're adjectives, not nouns. See, if singleness is deficient, then so is Jesus. Sam Albright says this, that both marriage and singleness point us to the gospel. The former reflects its shape, that marriage is a visible portrait of the invisible reality of our union with Christ, our oneness with him, the bride and the groom coming together. And the former reflects its sufficiency, or the, excuse me, the latter is its sufficiency. Marriage points to the shape of the gospel and singleness points to the sufficiency of the gospel. See, everything we do is driven by the reality that Jesus Christ has died for our sins in our place sealing our ultimate identity as children of God, not as married, single, or somewhere in between. So Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 7 was not to ask how singleness fits into the kingdom plan. Paul was addressing more how the issue of marriage fits into God's kingdom plan. Because here the single people are already with the program. He says in verse 32, they're concerned about the things of the Lord. It's the married people who are the ones that, are, that need help with their priorities. I mean, look at families oftentimes and newly married people especially when it comes to the church. It's like pulling teeth to get them to come. I've had people tell me who just got married, we're, we're, um, we're, we're just not gonna serve for a while because we're just gonna kind of focus on being married. What does that mean? For an hour on Sunday? A lot of times married Christians get in this kind of weird little world they find themselves in. It's just kind of, they just kind of remove themselves. It's like, no, no, no. Like, like you're the ones who need to get with the program often. It matters. I mean, think about church attendance oftentimes. In verse seven, he wishes that all men were unmarried like him. Let's talk about that for a minute. Paul says in the book of Philippians that he was 100% Orthodox Jew before faith in Christ. Jewish, Jewish orthodoxy, it made marriage a requirement. 
So if he was going to be completely orthodox, then he must have been married before. In Acts 20, Paul made a decision regarding the Christians as a member of what was called the Sanhedrin Council. You couldn't be a member of the Sanhedrin Council unless you were married. But he's not married now. So what happened? Well, all you can do is speculate. I'm just one of, we don't have a Bible verse that tells us. The two main options really are, scholars would tell you, is that his wife either died or that as a result of his, experience, of his conversion experience from Orthodox Judaism to a follower of Jesus, that she deserted him, that she left him. So a couple of principles just from that idea. Not being married anymore when you used to be doesn't mean that God is done with you. Look at Paul. Not being married when you once were married, if that's a widow situation, if that's divorce, whatever it might be, does not mean that God is done with you. You may have felt like that before. You may have had that implied before. Reject that thought. Look at Paul as an example. Not being married ever doesn't mean that God won't use you. Look at Jesus. Being married and no longer married doesn't mean that God is done with you. Having yet been married doesn't mean that God won't use you. And being married doesn't mean you get some kind of exemption from the mission of God. Aquila and Priscilla, a couple in the Bible, they hosted a church in their home together. They're both mentioned together as a unit. In Ephesus, they had a church in their home and were vital to the carrying out of the beginning of the church. Paul writes about them in 1 Timothy. You think God brought two lives together to remove himself from the world? No, he brought you together to be in people's lives, to be hospitable, to be on mission together, to open your home, to raise children for the glory of God. So Paul's looking at their situation here in 1 Corinthians 7. And he's concerned about what's happening in terms of the sexual ethics in their community, how it's become godless. And we see that some people were concerned too because they're reaching out to him from their church and going, Paul, help us please, like speak into this. And they overcorrected and said, wow, because it's just such chaos around here and immorality, here's what we're gonna do. No, no people, like no people are gonna have sex with anybody. Like including married people. And Paul's like, whoa, whoa. You're doing two things. You're setting yourself up for disaster in two areas. One, you are thumbing your nose at God's design. That's not how God made things to be. There was sex in marriage before there was sin in the world. It's not the sex that's the problem, it's the brokenness that's taken God's design and moved outside of the boundaries he's given us for, our, for his glory and for our good. And second, what we're doing is he says you're setting yourself up for serious temptation from the devil. And he says to the people, for, and they didn't have a dating category back then like we do today, so dating's kind of complicated because it doesn't make it bad, we just don't have like a step-by-step -step guy. Like dating's more of a kind of a, a later creation. There was more of like arranged marriages back then and courting and all these kind of things. So how we do dating today, there's just not really a category for it, but there is a category for sexual ethics for Christians. 
And that is that God and his love for us and his design for us and his plan for us, would love for you to go back and listen to last week's sermon where we really get into some of that. That sex is not for in love people or ready people or mature people, it's for married people. And God defines marriage as a husband and a wife till death do them part. So in the whole dating idea of things, he does give us some principles we can grab onto. And, and, and one of those is it's better to marry than to burn with desire. That doesn't mean because your hormones are rolling that you go get married tomorrow. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay? That's not what we're talking about here. I'm going to get all kind of emails from like college parents back home. Like, what are you talking about? You know, kind of thing. And, but that's not what we're talking about. We're saying that these like long-term dating relationships, these long-term engagements, these kind of dating around the scene and multiple, uh, that, that, that's, it's, it, it could lead you to some pretty bad places. So in those dating relationships, and, 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 and to, to allow them to, one, just let them be fun at first, just get to know somebody. And, and my, my advice, it's just my advice, is to, to do what I just call no regrets dating. No regrets dating. To where if things don't work out, which there's a decent chance they won't. You know, two things happen, either you get married or you break up, right? Okay. That you're, you don't feel like you have given yourself to someone, given much of your life away. You're getting to know someone, it moved to being more serious, those, those type of things, but it's a no regrets kind of relationship. That's just kind of my advice. As, as you pursue dating, whatever your you know, age is here, that you have no regrets relationship. Then as you both know that this is serious, like we're mature, we're, we're not just trying to, we, we were just trying to get to know each other, it was innocent, it was just, you know, it was simple, but now like, okay, like I like him, she likes me, Christian values lined up, like I could see myself, I, I like to make, marriage is a choice, I, 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 would, I could see myself making a decision to go forward with this person, likewise with the other, start, start going forward, like start moving towards something. And here's what's happened too, is that we've let the world define it so much that the idea of like a surprise engagement and a fairy tale story and all these kind of things, which are fun and fine, what they've done is they've kept us from having conversations about moving forward. So in a dating relationship, when it starts to get, this is just my advice, when it starts to get somewhere, start talking about it like engagement. Like it's okay, that it's not, you'll still be surprised, okay? Like it, it'll still be fun, it'll still be your friend hiding in the bushes taking pictures, like all those things will still happen, okay? But, and candles lit up and all will still happen at Lake Ella, whatever floats your boat. All right, but, but like start the conversation and go, hey, like where's this going? Here's my intentions. Like, I just don't wanna date for fun. They don't say that the first date, they're gonna be like pumpkin spice latte to go, right? Like they, not, but like just as things start progressing, just say, hey, here's my intentions. You know, I'm not just looking to like date around. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just, let's just, be, let's just have those kind of conversations. They matter and they'll save us from a lot of things. So Paul's saying, hey, married people, commit to that marriage, not just relationally, but physically. This is part of God's design. And for single people, he's saying, hey, look, like you're, you, man, you're, you're more locked in than these married folks are. They need to learn from you. <laughs> I mean, like, because you have the opportunity. It doesn't mean you're not busy, and no one should take advantage of, the, of your status of life either. But it's saying that ultimately right now, like, you, you're, you're responsible for you. Some of you might care for a parent, something along those lines, but, but you're responsible for you, ultimately, uh, when, when I go home, I'm, I'm 24 hours a day, I'm, I'm responsible for, for a house full of people. It doesn't make me more busy than you, because everybody's busy in their own way. It doesn't make my life more significant than yours. 
It just means that my attention often is all these different places where Paul's saying that someone that's not in that situation has the opportunity to be more single-minded about their faith and more locked in. It's not an excuse, it's just a reality. So here's the good news. God's using all of us for his glory. All of us. Every single person that calls their God, our God, Father, who's a part of his church, God's using all of us. So we should care about every person flourishing and thriving in what God has for their life at this time and the season as going forward, whatever it might be. So I just want to encourage us from 1 Corinthians 7 to be people who are about God's design and God's sexual ethic for us, regardless of what our status might be, and to see how God uses all people in his family, all people in his church, to work together for the glory of God, and also how much God loves us to give us warnings to protect us and look after us and preserve these relationships for his glory and for his name. So let's pray together, and then we will move forward in our service. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for verse Corinthians 7, and we're thankful that you love your people enough to speak directly to what's going on in culture and in society and to help us put the guardrails around our lives that will keep us from falling short of your glory, that'll keep us from departing from your design. And I ask that we will listen to that and be faithful. We'll care about the words of our God. We'll care about what the Bible says. That'll be what drives us. That we will wanna give our lives to you every day because Jesus has given his life for us. So for the one who died and rose again and one day will return, we thank you for your grace and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.